Praise the Lord. Good morning. If you would turn to First Peter chapter two, verse four. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God. So what have men done with Jesus? By and large, they've rejected Jesus, right? But God actually chose him. God's saying he's the only acceptable foundation. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, the living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's like a tombstone, right? And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God, are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Now listen to this. Dear friends... Now think of all the wonderful things he just said to this group of people. You are a holy nation. You are God's people. You are a royal priesthood. You are all of these things living in this world today. You are on the foundation that God accepts the only one. You're all these wonderful things. He says, but dear friends, I urge you as, mine says, aliens and strangers in the world, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that when they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God the day that he visits us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, anoint your word, anoint your message, Lord. Let it be like an oracle directly from your mouth. Lord, hide me behind your cross. Lord God, speak truth. Give strength and courage to every person, every family, Lord God. Do a mighty work in every heart. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So be it, Lord. So he says, We are aliens and strangers. And um, so, all you conspiracy theorists out there, Title of my message is Alien Nation. And all right, some of you are like, let's get down to the nitty gritty. I've oh, I've known it all along. I knew it. And now he's finally preaching it. I'm going to open up the FBI files and I'm going to tell you about these aliens. And uh, But let me tell you something. Don't you find it unusual that Paul 
who's talking about those who are accepted by God and are building their lives on the only foundation that God accepts, and that's the foundation of Jesus Christ, and they're a royal priesthood, and they're a building that's being built in the midst of the world. He calls us living stones. But then he comes after that and says, you're aliens and strangers in the world. Aliens and strangers in the world. And other translations of the Bible try to translate that word, so I don't want to um, confuse anybody with the word alien. I just like the title. I think it's cool. All right. The Brian Study Bible says, I'm sorry, New American Standard says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. New King James Version says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. King James says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. So basically the ideal he's saying is, we have to put ourselves in a um, scenario where we are not the native people that are living in that nation. And a lot of us, it's very difficult to put ourselves in a situation where we are not um, the majority, right? Where we're not the people of the land. And then and, and Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, I said Paul, or this is uh, written by Peter. And uh, Peter is writing this in a period of time where there is serious unrest in the world. In fact, it's around the time of July of uh, 64 AD, and there is an emperor over the Roman Empire um, who basically, uh, Nero, and he basically set the entire city on fire. And a lot of people believe the reason that he set it on fire, if he did do it, but the tradition is that he did, and uh, he wanted to rebuild the city. And they say that uh, most likely he set fire to the city himself because he wanted to rebuild the city. He was a builder, and he wanted to build, uh, and, and they wanted the city to look totally different than it did, and so he wanted to put his kind of uh, stamp on the city by building his own stuff. And so this fire just ravaged the city. Okay, it just destroyed um, Rome, and uh, a lot of the people were very angry because they lost everything in this fire. And so Nero very quickly um, began to um, accuse, uh, he began to use as a scapegoat the Christians. And he said it was the Christians that did this, and it was the Christians that caused this. And so now, um, due to that story and that rumor being spread by the administration, there was a severe persecution of Christians all over the Roman Empire. And so previously, the Christians had nearly uh, been wiped out by Jews who had um, tried to extinguish the, the, the sect of Christians, and uh, they followed them everywhere, but, it, but all it did was made it spread like wildfire. Everywhere they tried to put them out, they went to another area as strangers, and the gospel just continued to spread because of their lives. Their lives were such a br- bright, shining light in a world that was really dark. And now the Roman Empire is set ablaze with um, a Roman emperor that is um, now beginning from, from the Romans, they're beginning to oppress the Christians. And so Peter, depending on where you believe he's writing this from, he says he's writing this from Babylon. 
And uh, he gives greetings from people from Babylon. Now, there's two different ideas of where he's writing it. Most commentators believe that's a cold word to hide where he's actually at, which is Rome. And so most believe he's writing from Rome, and the tradition goes that Peter would shortly after that lose his life in Rome. He would be executed by the Roman emperor. So he's writing this letter under serious duress. I think it's actually pretty cool if, like some people say, he was writing it from Babylon. Because we kind of lose track of where Peter was at, and if he were somehow in that area of Babylon, I think it really uh, makes this epistle a lot more interesting. I probably would agree that it's from Rome. But um, I want you to begin to think of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were forced out of their homeland um, at one time. In fact, they became a nation by, by leaving their homeland and becoming slaves in Egypt. How many know this? And so they had to learn to keep their identity in Egyptian slavery. They came out of slavery and God made them a nation. And they were a nation for many hundreds of years. They were a nation. They were distinct. They uh, they had a certain way they worshiped the Lord. The, the scriptures are all from the uh, Jewish nation. And then the Jewish nation, after that, went into what's called the dispersion. I mean, they were scattered over the whole world. And you say, well, what's that have to do with me? Why is this important to me, what happened to the Jews? Because they had to go in what's called the Babylonian bondage. Meaning they lost their nation and they got scattered in different areas in Babylon. Now I want you to imagine what that is like when you're scattered as a nation and you have an identity as a people and now you find yourself a stranger in a strange land. And here's the big deal. Usually when a nation goes into bondage in another nation, they lose their identity completely. And this is where it affects us. They go into that culture, and the Babylonian culture begins to change every nation that was in bondage to the Babylonians. And by the time they're done, they serve the gods of the Babylonians. They... they live the culture of the Babylonians. They become almost Babylonian and you're almost not even distinct anymore as a people. And that's what happened to almost every people that went into Babylonian captivity, which was a lot of nations because they were the ruler of the known world at that time. Then shortly after the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians. And so the Medes and the Persians kind of... um, also worship the gods of the of the Babylonians. And the Medes and the Persians, Israel was now captive, strangers in a strange land, and now they were finding themselves in a Persian kingdom. And so the Jewish people somehow, as strangers in a strange land, kept their identity. This is a miracle. They kept their identity as strangers in a strange land. They still kept their identity as Jewish people, which is amazing. Then they shortly after came the uh, Greek Empire. And they found themselves members of a Greek society, a Hellenistic culture, a, um, a culture that basically acquired a lot of the same pagan gods 
as the Babylonians, the Persians, and now the Greeks, and the same philosophers. And then shortly after that came the Romans. And then the Jews had to live in a Roman culture, and the Romans acquired, you guessed it, the same gods, the same philosophies, the same worldly system that the Babylonians gave to the Persians, the Persians gave to the Greeks, the Greeks gave to the Romans. And now here's Peter in this culture talking about living as aliens in a strange culture. And so how did the Jewish people keep their identity? And that's what it's really all about in this book. Because we have families, children, um, churches, and it's really, really critical that somehow we keep the culture of the foundation of Jesus Christ in our life. And some point we need to come to the reality that we are strangers in a strange land. And you say, well, what do you mean? And what I'm saying is I want you to begin to think what it's like if you were in a nation. How many have ever been in a nation where you didn't speak their language? You couldn't converse with them. You couldn't communicate with them. You didn't speak the language that they spoke. You couldn't pick up the paper and understand anything that's on the paper. You couldn't go to a job interview and express your desire to have a job. You couldn't, uh, really you didn't understand it at all. And I'm telling you right now, Peter, three or four times in this chapter, calls them aliens, calls them foreigners, calling them strangers in a strange land. And can I tell you something? When you pick up the paper in the United States of America, spiritually we are aliens in a strange land. I may have ever picked up the paper and seen protests and said, man, this doesn't, I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. Now, obviously, there are some things that make sense, right? All of us can understand. In fact, how many are a little claustrophobic? I mean, I, I've got some pipes under my house where just my chest fits in there. And the last time I fixed those pipes, I said, I'll never do it again because I don't like my chest being restricted. How many can understand, I think 100%, if I'm getting arrested and I can't breathe, um, we need to change something if somebody can't breathe. How many think that's just common sense? I don't think I've seen one person that disagreed. How many agree that any time you're dealing with law enforcement, we should have rules of engagement that everybody understands, everybody's respectful to one another, respectful to cops, respectful to people that are being arrested or incarcerated? How many agree with that? We have very few that do. But then you begin to watch, and you begin to see, and in church, can I tell you something? A lot of the ideals that we're being told we should accept have socialistic foundations. They are uh, they go all the way back to um, Marx and Engels, and, and if you don't know this already, I'm going to start teaching you some of the language of our nation, okay? Some of the communication that maybe you're not getting because we're Christians, But can I tell you that the institutions, the colleges, have been teaching socialism for a very, very long time. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but there is a philosophy. How many have ever heard of critical theory? Critical theory is this idea, it's this uh, criticism that goes back to uh, not only Marxist and Leninist and 
and um, and Ingalls and all these different philosophers, but they were inundated with it themselves. And the idea is this critical idea is that um, <clears throat> that there's two groups of people. There's the oppressors and there's the oppressed. Okay, and everything bad in society is coming from the oppressed. And if we can just get rid of the oppressed class, the the oppressor class, the oppressed can rise up and everything will be utopian. And a lot of people don't realize, and and you say, well, Chad, you're just saying that that's the foundation. No, I'm telling you, these protests have been stewing for a long time on college campuses. How many know this? They've been inundated with teaching of socialist principles. Can I tell you something? I don't need to teach on Karl Marx. I don't need to teach on Engels. I don't need to teach on socialism because it has failed everywhere it's ever been implemented. And the people that are teaching these ideals know they failed everywhere they've ever taught it. They've been terrible prognosticators of the future. They've been terrible at implementing their ideals and being successful. In fact, I've got a little community um, that was famous um, 200 years ago, New Harmony. And this guy was well-known. Robert Owens, one of the most famous socialists uh, the world has ever known. And he came to New Harmony with ideals, and he had all the funding and all the money. It lasted two years and failed. And there's 130 societies that have been built on socialism in the United States, and about 30 of them were from that man, Robert Owen. And it's a failed system that does not work, and their their cry is, well, it didn't work that time, but we're going to do it better next time. And can I tell you something, church? There are ideals of socialism that are out there, and we don't understand the language always. We don't understand what's being taught. We don't understand why people are in the streets. We don't understand why people are agitated because we are uh, strangers in a strange land. In fact, uh, the ideal of socialism is built on a bad foundation that's not Jesus Christ. The foundation is if we just take care of everything that is around us in our environment, if we just get rid of this oppressor class, then all of a sudden everything is just going to be perfect. And one analogy that I'll give you, because I don't want to, in fact, it's not even in my notes any of this. wasn't planning on talking about it, honestly. But I may have ever had an apple that had uh, wormholes in it. And you kind of started eating it and you didn't realize it. And then and it was on the other side of the apple and you started eating it. And, and, uh, and then you notice there's a half a worm in there, right? Now, how do you suppose there's a half a worm in an apple? Because the other half of it's in your mouth, right? That's the only way. But a lot of people, and and socialism is kind of built on this principle, the whole idea is if we can really sanitize the environment, we won't have worms in our apple and we won't end up with rotten apples. But does anybody know how a worm gets in an apple? He doesn't go from the outside and work his way in like most of us suppose. He lays his larva on the flower. And do you understand that sin is like that? This flower grows, it blooms, the apple comes about, and you say, man, I've done everything in the environment to make this apple perfect, and then you eat it, and you end up eating half of a worm because it's rotten. And the idea was this worm planted itself in this apple a long time before it was ever in the environment. 
That's why we have so many rotten apples. And so if your oppressed class rises up over the oppressor class, they're still going to have rotten apples. And that's why socialism doesn't work. That's a quick lesson. Because we have to deal with sin. Sin is in the heart of the oppressor class. Sin is in the heart of the oppressed class. How many of you know that's true? Socialists don't necessarily understand that. And church, Paul or Peter here is talking about how should we live as aliens in a world um, that is not Christian. Okay, this is a country. How many know that we are aliens in a country that is not Christian? How many know that? And so what did the Jewish people do to retain their identity? Because here is what's going to happen if we don't know our foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. If we don't live the kind of life that Peter is recommending here, what's going to happen is we're going to lose our identity as Christians. We're going to slowly, slowly begin to talk like the world, use the terminology of the world, believe in the ideals of the world. And and church, can I tell you something? I've seen a lot of Christians that have been fooled by these protests. Fooled. You know, it's, it's, these protests are far beyond equality for people who are being arrested. It's far beyond the equality of certain classes. This is an intentional agitation to try to um, overthrow a capitalist government and become a socialist society. That's the truth. As much as I can tell you, that is the truth. And church, we're trying in the middle of this world, we don't want to take sides. I don't want to say I'm on one side and I'm on the other, because both are faulty thinking systems. Both are faulty systems that will fail. The only foundation that is successful is the foundation that is found in the Word of God. So how did the Jewish people maintain their identity? Because I want to know, because I've got to maintain my identity as a Christian in a world that is not Christian. How many know that living in this country as a Christian is almost the same as Israel living in Babylon and trying to maintain their Jewish identity. It's almost like living in Persia and maintaining your Christian identity. It's almost like being in Egypt under bondage and somehow maintaining your identity. And somehow they did it. And I want you to begin to think how they did it. Everywhere the Jews went, they met in synagogue, right? They had a strong base where they met in synagogue, right? And they studied what? The Torah. So they met together, they encouraged one another, they read the Torah, they studied the Torah, they had certain um, traditions that they followed, and even to this day, how many know if you're ever in a Jewish culture, they follow those traditions to a T. And church, I'm telling you that if we don't get serious about our identity as Christians and living on that foundation and teaching it to our children, we'll be absorbed in the culture and we'll lose our identity as a Christian. And let me ask you a question. Is your behavior any different than the world? Is your entertainment any different than the world? Is your 
um, habits any different than the world. In fact, I see Christians that say, man, you know what, I don't, I don't really need to go to church. It's not really that big of a deal because the church is the people, not the building. Can you imagine if the Jews behave that way when they're in Babylon and in Persia and, and, and Greek culture and Roman culture? Can you imagine if they said to themselves, the people are the church and we just don't need to assemble together? How long do you think the Jewish people would have survived in these cultures? In fact, when you're alone in your home, how many know the Bible says you're like susceptible to every wind of doctrine? You'll go this way, you'll go that way. And can I tell you something? You're going to hear these philosophies. If you're young and you're about to go to college, you're going to hear philosophies that are made to destroy your faith in Jesus Christ and tear up your foundation. I'm just telling you, that is what it's designed to do. It's nearly 100% in universities. How many know that? We are aliens living in a foreign country. All right, we uh, and this is the issue. Peter's talking to people that weren't actually uh, immigrants. They all lived in the place where they grew up at. They all were not visiting countries where they didn't know the language. He was actually speaking to people that were scattered, and because of their faith, they were treated differently than everybody else. They were being persecuted, but they were from the areas that they were at. The only difference is they were born on this earth, but now they're born from above. And so their citizenship is from another country. And so Peter was trying to tell them that you are living as aliens. You've got to maintain your identity in a culture that is against God. They were pagans. They were people that weren't living for God. So listen to some of the language that uh, Peter uses in trying to explain to them to hold on to their foundation of Jesus Christ. He says uh, in First Peter one one seventeen. He says, "Since you are, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear." First Peter two eleven. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Um, he goes again. He um, says in First Peter. 1 to 6, you are residing as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Bithynia. 2 Peter 2.12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Do you see this? They're living among Pagans. Now, would it be a little easier to um, live a life in obedience to Christ if we just called everybody who wasn't a Christian pagans? But see, we still think we're in a Christian nation. We still think that all around us are people that are just pretty good people, even though they have no concern for God, they don't live for God, they have no desire to live for God. How many know this is true? In fact, in, in every sense of the word, in fact, the way they worship, the way they behave, the way they speak, they're no different than a pagan back in the time of Peter. And he's saying, live such good lives among the pagans 
though they accuse you of doing wrong, what are they going to do? Wrong, wrong, wrong. All you Christians are wrong. How many have ever gotten that attitude from a, let's call them what they are, pagans? Non-believers, those who have no desire for God, don't want to live for God. And some of us are engaged in conversations and we're trying to make Christianity palatable to people who are pagans. How many know that's true? And so we're spending all of our time and they're telling us we're wrong, 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 which they should because why? They don't believe it. They're not Christians. They're not serving the Lord. They're not believers. They're non-believers. So everything that should come out of their mouth is what? You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And so rather than engaging and arguing, Peter takes a whole different route. He says, let your life be such a good life among the pagans that when they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, if they're glorifying God on the day that God visits us, what are they? Christians. You understand this is groundbreaking. This is revolutionary. Peter is saying this is the way you're going to win the lost is not engaging in arguments and conversations. When they call you wrong, you should have a reaction, and that reaction shouldn't be arguing, fighting, strife, trying to convince people of ideals they don't even believe in. He says, live such a good life that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. He goes on. It says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. So on whose sake are we submitting ourselves? The Lord, this is going to be a hard one here. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Man, I wish you wouldn't have said that. But Chad, we're Americans. We're Americans. We want to fight the system. We want to change the system. We want to be the majority. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones that are uh, constantly fighting with everybody. And what he's saying is... Be the greatest citizens that the world has ever seen. Be the most, do more good deeds to those who disagree with you than anybody that's ever lived. Church, can you see where we're lowering ourselves? Because we were so used to being a majority in America. We still believe we're the majority. We still believe that more people in this world are serving Christ than are not serving Christ, when the reality is, all over the world, the Christians are the minority, and this is one of the very few places on earth where we've almost been a majority. And we don't know how to live as aliens in a world that hates God. And so we're trying to make our Christianity 
palatable and by making our Christianity palatable and trying to win people who don't care anything for God, we're watering down the gospel and we're not living on the foundation that God called us to live on because we're trying to make it agreeable to everybody around us who are actually pagans. We're softening our beliefs to try to bring along people who aren't even believers. Do you understand, church? And what God's calling us to do is be the church, be the living stones, be the temple where it says a living temple that people can come in and worship in is our lives. They need to be able to see with us true belief and true faith and true dedication to God and true consecration to God. And you say, well, man, I want to try to make it palatable. No, God says just live your life and be good. Do good things. Do the right thing. Love people. Let me go on. Peter wanted to um, he wanted to teach the believers all through First Peter. In fact, Peter, like I said, he's about to die. He's toward the end of his life. I mean, he's writing how we should live in the world around us. And um, he's trying to teach them because he knows they're going to be, they're being persecuted and the persecution is ratcheting up. It's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. And Peter's trying to teach them how to live in a society that's beginning to really persecute them. And so he begins to tell them, in fact, he doesn't want them to lose hope. He doesn't want them to become bitter. Um, He wants them to trust in God with all of their heart and he wants them to look for the second coming. But look in 1 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not pay their evil with evil or or repay their insults with more insults. On the contrary, repay their evil with blessing. So Paul's saying, how do we deal with a culture that is anti-God, against God, don't want the foundation of God in this country, hate everything that we stand for? He says, when they do evil to you, bless them. He says, when they insult you, come back with a better comeback. Right? No. Testing you, I'm sorry. When they insult you, we don't come back with a better comeback. It says, when they insult you, don't repay it with another insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because this is what you were called to so that you may inherit a blessing from it. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These ones who are insulting you, these ones who are doing evil to you, God's eyes are not on them. He's not watching their evil. He's not listening to their prayers to heal our nation and heal the issues of this nation. He's not listening to them. He's not looking at them. His eyes are on the righteous to see how we react. You know, you can be mad all day because you've exchanged insults with a non-Christian on social media or you can return their evil with good. You can uh, return their insults with blessing, and you can go home and pray all night for that person. Or you can be mad all day because you exchanged insults and you can't figure out why they don't understand your Christian faith. You can choose. 
But Peter's trying to tell us how to live in a world where we're aliens, where we're sojourners, where we're foreigners. Then he goes on and he says, uh, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Do you understand what's happening here? He's already acknowledging that you're going to be slandered. He's acknowledging that it will happen. What do... What do pagans do? What do non-Christians do? What do those who hate God do to people who they see are living for the Lord truly? They slander them. They insult them. Uh, He's saying they uh, do evil things to you. They do all these things against you because they know you're a Christian. How many have ever felt that target on your back? The target is on your back and you say, well, man, Peter just never lived during a time like we're living. He's talking about Nero when he says, honor the emperor. Man, does that bother you? Nero might be the most wicked man that's ever lived. He's in the discussion. Okay, if you know anything about his life, he's in the discussion. In fact, he would burn Christians on stakes and use them as streetlights. He'd hang them up and then he'd drive people through to look at his wonderful streetlights. Okay, that's pretty wicked, right? He was mean, he was wicked, he did some terrible things. He's responsible for the death of Peter and Paul. And um, and if he did what he's accused of doing, setting fire and blaming the Christians, it makes it even worse. Yet Peter is saying, honor the emperor. Do good to people that harm you. They're going to slander you, they return it with good. I was reading a story, in fact, uh, uh, I'm always amazed to look back at how Christians throughout history changed, um, were such a force for good. And um, in fact, um, every, major, um, every major good that's ever been done in this country has been evangelical Christians rising up. And I, I go back to the civil rights movement, and, and uh, there were lots of people. Um, in fact, if you look at the abolition of slavery in our country, that was a, uh, from the Second Great Awakening, it was a revival. The church rose up and the church said, enough. You know, this should not be in our country. The civil rights movement, um, when you look at um, a story that I read that I really was amazed with, um, there was a group of kids that were, um, there was a sheriff in a small town. Well, it was actually not a small town, it was Birmingham. And he did some really bad things to these kids. And uh, he made them walk a long distance, made them all sick. They were throwing up. Uh, he treated them harshly and badly. And um, they were uh, little kids who were uh, kids of color. And this was a white sheriff. And, uh, and I look at... Um, the heart of these kids. And he was cruel to them. He was terrible to them. He was mean to them. He did bad things to them. 
But they believe that scripture, return evil with good. And that sheriff got sick and was dying in the hospital, and those kids sat outside of his window and began to sing hymns. They began to sing hymns over him and pray over him and bless him. And how many know those are the kinds of acts that change the world? When they do evil to you, we do good. But see, we sometimes live by the same cold the world lives by. And that cold is return evil with evil, um, uh, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How many see that? How many see that gripping your heart sometimes and saying, man, they're going to do that, well, I'm going to do this. They're going to say that, well, I'm going to say this. And Peter is just really stressing that if you want to see change in the world, we got to begin to live from above, not from the earth. We can't do things like all these other groups are doing. We've got to love in a different way. We've got to act in a different way. We've got to be Christians in a world that is non-Christian. How many know that? We have a higher call. We don't have a call to take sides. And you say, well, Chad, you have to take a side. No, I don't have to take a side. I have to love the Lord with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul. And if I do that, I'll reach people and I'll change the world. You say, no, you have to take it. No, I don't have to take a side. I'm going to pray for you. I know your ideals. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to insult you. I'm not going to say negative things about you. I'm going to pray for you. And then when you slander me later, guess what? You might feel bad about it. You guys understand what he's teaching here? It's not deep. It's love everybody and quit fighting back and insulting and ripping each other apart and tearing each other apart. God wants us to go home and be full of the love of Christ and love people. He wants us to change people. Stand to your feet. Church, we're called to be that alien nation. Amen? Hallelujah. In fact, you say, well, Chad, can I, uh, can I come to the front and you lay hands on me and me have that? No, you need to work this out in your life, church. You say, well, why would a person pray every morning? Anybody here pray every morning? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to get a count. Why would I pray every morning? Because it's nearly impossible for me to live the life God's calling me to live unless He fills me with the Holy Spirit that morning. You say, well, why would we have a prayer room and why would we want a prayer room open every day? Because our ministry... It says we're a holy priesthood offering sacrifice in a temple made of living stones, which is us. We need a prayer room open because part of our life needs to be, God, we need you to change our nation. We need you to change our city. We need you to change our home. We're people that are called for a purpose. And if we look just like the world, we're not going to fulfill that purpose. If our entertainment's the same, if our attitudes are the same, if our behaviors are the same, How are we a unique people that have an identity? And God's calling us to be a unique people. And some of you are afraid to be Christians. Some of you are afraid to be Christians and stand up for this foundation. God's calling us. You say, well, no, I, I talk all the time about Christian things. No, I'm saying do Christian things. I'm saying have a prayer life that changes the world. 
I'm saying worship God like nobody else worships. I'm saying love God like nobody's ever loved God. Love people more than anybody's ever loved people. Love your enemies more than anybody's ever loved their enemies. And you say, what? You say, man, I get so sick of your messages, Chad. Because we want to come in here and have a rally against the socialists. No, Jesus has called you to love them. Jesus said, "Be live such a good life that when I come back, they're right beside you worshiping me, loving me. And God's called us to love people. God's called us to get out of our comfort zone and begin to reach out to people. God's calling us to begin to communicate their language. How many of you know we can't speak their language right now? God's calling us to learn their language. What is their language? Why do they believe this is right? Why do they build their life on this foundation we need to learn their language so we can communicate with them and right now he's saying we're foreigners and we don't even know their language we don't even know how how to uh, acclimate ourselves to society because we're so closed off to loving other people and god's calling us to learn the language and you say well yeah the oppressor group should learn the language no the oppressed group should also learn the language God's calling us to be Christians, not of this world, not in groups, not in races, not in certain sexual orientations. God's called us to be Christians who love people and live differently than the world. Hallelujah. close in a word of prayer uh, this message probably isn't the most exciting message but uh, can I tell you something we have to have an eye understanding of reality and church I'm telling you this nation is in trouble this nation is in trouble and a lot of people that I talk to think man we've got a Christian foundations a Christian society and Church, I'm telling you, it's not that way. If you're going to survive in this world that is full of pagan idolatry, it's not any different than the days of Peter. You're going to have to build a foundation that is solid. Your family is not only going to have to know um, that you're a Christian or a Christian church or a Christian family, they're going to have to build foundations themselves in order to be a strong Christian in the world that we live in. We can't water it down, church. We've got to know what we believe. We've got to have strong foundations. We've got to build a fortress inside of us that's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And here's the problem. Our gospel is so watered down. Our practice uh, of living our life out in this society is so watered down. The... um, understanding of what's going on around us is not always based in reality church and i'm calling out this is a word of warning we got to start pressing into the presence of god we got to start pressing into the word of god we got to start pressing in and calling upon the name of the lord because this nation is in trouble and i can't stand in front of you and say everything is okay church we need to begin to cry out to god We need to begin to cry out to God. We need to cry out to God for our children. We need to begin to build foundations in the hearts of our children. 
Church, I'm telling you, we're right in the middle of a mess, and God wants to do God wants to have a revival in this nation. God wants a revival of Christians who aren't afraid to stand up and live out their Christian life in a world. You say, well, I can't say those words, and I can't say this word. God's called us to speak the truth in love. You say, well, they may not like me. That may not be political. God's called us to build our house on a foundation that is strong. If our foundation is watered down, it won't hold up. We've got to have a strong foundation built on the Word of God. We've got to practice that every day of our life. Let me know that's true. Hallelujah. I'm calling out to the church today. Hallelujah. This is truth, church. This is truth. There's things going around us that are demonic. The enemy is making in-grounds on your children. And we got to call out to the Lord. And if you don't see that, I need the Holy Spirit to tell you that. Because we're, we need to be desperate for God. We need to be desperate for His Spirit. We need to be desperate for revival. And we're sitting around almost like the old story of the frog in boiling water. We don't realize it's being ratcheted up and we're just sitting there doing nothing. God saying, no, you need to wake up, church. You need to begin to call out to God. He's saying, well, why a prayer room? How many know that people say that? Why a prayer room? We need to begin calling out in all hours of the night, going after God with all of our heart because only God can change your family. Only God can change this nation. We need a move of God in the United States of America. How many agree with that? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, Father, begin to raise us up, Lord God. Father, a holy priesthood, Lord God, a royal nation, Lord God, with healing and its wings, Lord God. Father, I pray, Lord, that you begin to move on hearts, Lord. Lord, that there would be a hunger for you, Lord God. Lord, a hunger for your presence, Lord God. Father, I pray for a mighty move of God in this church, Lord. Oh, Father, that you raise up your people in the hour that we need it, Lord God. Raise it up. Your church, Lord. Bless these people, Lord God. Lord, fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord. The mighty things in our lives, Lord God. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.